young couple that was very much in love with each other. They were engaged to be married. They were both followers of Jesus Christ. And tragically, the day before their wedding, they were both killed in a car accident. And both being followers of Jesus Christ, they go up to heaven, they meet Peter there at the pearly gates, and Peter welcomes welcomes them to heaven and he's about to usher them in. And before they go inside, the couple says, can we just have one request? We would request that we could be married. You see, we were really looking forward to being married, and it was such a tragic way that our lives ended so early. And so we just have this request that we could be married. And Peter says, well, of course not. That's against the rules. Didn't you read what Jesus said? That's against the rules. Nobody's married here in heaven. And they said, yeah, yeah, we know. But we were just wondering if you could make this one exception for us because we do care for each other so much and we were both so much looking forward to getting married. We'd really appreciate if you could make just one exception for us. And so Peter was, was touched by this young couple. He was touched by the tragedy that ended their lives so early in such a tragic way. So he relented and said, on this one occasion, we'll make an exception and you can be married. So he said, wait right here while I go and find somebody to, to perform the ceremony. So he goes and Peter's gone for what seems like an eternity. There's really only maybe 10,000 years or so, but it seemed like an eternity that they're waiting for Peter to come back. And meanwhile, while they're waiting, they have plenty of opportunity to think through everything. And you know how things can sometimes go when you think through things, especially when you're thinking through a wedding. So finally, Peter comes back and he has with him a pastor that's going to perform the ceremony. And he gets back and they're about to get started and the couple says, well, wait just a minute, we've kind of thought through this thing now and we've been thinking that maybe it'd be a good idea if we would have some prenuptial agreements drawn up just in case, you never know. We know that we are sin-free now and everything, but just in case, maybe we should have some prenuptial agreements drawn up. At which point, Peter just throws up his hands in total frustration and says, it took me this long to find a pastor up here. How long do you think it's going to take me to find a lawyer up here? Just a humorous way of getting started this morning on the topic of the people of heaven. We're in a series called The Afterlife. We're looking at at nearly every aspect of the existence that comes after this one. We started by looking at physical death, and then we moved on from that to the intermediate state. We looked at the resurrection. We looked at the day of judgment. We looked at hell. And for all of these, these events, these periods of time that take place after our existence in this life, we found that the follower of Jesus Christ has every reason to look forward to all of those things with great anticipation. There is nothing in the existence after this one that will hinder our joy in any way. Now, last week we began looking at the apex of the series, which is heaven itself. And we noticed that heaven technically hasn't begun yet. We oftentimes think of those who have passed away in the Lord as being in heaven. But the Bible speaks technically of heaven as something that hasn't begun yet and won't begin until after the judgment day. So we looked at this reality called heaven. We started last week by looking at the place of heaven. Uh, Today we're going to look at the people of heaven. Next week we'll finish all this up by looking at the activity of heaven. Um, But we looked last week at the place of heaven and we kind of looked at some of the dimensions of the physical aspect of the New Jerusalem city. We looked at how New Jerusalem begins. We saw how heaven and earth are sort of uh, created, resurrected in a sense, to a new existence, to a taint-free existence. And we saw New Jerusalem come down from heaven and united together the new heavens and the new earth. We looked at the size of New Jerusalem. We looked at the, at the materials, the building materials of New Jerusalem. 
And in all these things, we saw that God was communicating to us the ideas of preciousness, of value, of worth, of beauty, uh, all the, the descriptors that are given to us, the streets of gold, the gates of pearl, the walls of precious stones. All those things aren't telling us that we'll literally walk on gold and, and see gates made out of a single pearl. It's communicating to us a grand idea of beauty and value and worth. What you have experienced in this life as beautiful and valuable will be commonplace in the next life. It will be commonplace in heaven. The things that you know of here in this life that are the most beautiful to you, that will be so far exceeded in, in, uh, in the existence that, that is known as heaven. And that's what those words are trying to communicate to us. Valuables of, of gold and jewels, streets of gold. We also looked at the language that describes the size of the city. We, sent, we found it to be an enormous place. A place in which space is not a problem at all. We also looked at some of the language that describes the clarity and the transparency and the brightness of heaven. And we saw that that's communicating to us the idea of clearness, of understanding. No more misconceptions. No more more lack of, of perception. Heaven will not be a place of darkness. It will not be a place of shadows. And that's, that doesn't mean that it's literally so bright there. It means that, that our, our understanding will be illuminated. There will be no more fear. We saw how the sea is taken away. There is no more sea. And metaphorically, that speaks to us of a place of fear. For the Israelites, the sea represented everything that was unknown and everything that was to be feared. And there is no more sea there. So it's not a place of fear. It's not a place of shadows. It's not a place of worry. Instead, it is a tremendous new city for us. And so we moved on from that. Today, we'll look at the people of heaven, the inhabitants of heaven. Now, as we're doing this, let's remind ourselves that if you are in Christ Jesus, we're talking about your home. We're not talking about science fiction. We're not talking about children's fables. Even though we're describing a world that none of us have ever seen, and a world that is incapable of being described with human words, nonetheless... Those of us who are in Christ Jesus will feel a kinship. We will feel a a distinct connection because we were made for heaven. Heaven was made for us. It is our home. And so I hope that you sense that this morning. So grab your Bible and we'll begin in Revelation chapter 21, the Bible's premier passage on telling us details about heaven. Just turn to the end of your Bible, flip back one chapter. Revelation chapter 21, we'll begin reading from verse 1. We'll read the first seven verses. Revelation chapter 21. Beginning from verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, To the one who conquers, I will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we'll stop right there for now. 
We see the language again describing the reality called New Jerusalem or heaven. Lots of stuff there for us to look at. Lots of stuff for us to talk about. But let's begin with verse 7. Because verse 7 describes the inhabitants of heaven. It says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. The heritage is the possession of heaven. So, the inhabitants of heaven will all be conquerors. Heaven will be populated by conquerors, by overcomers, by perseverers. Heaven will not be populated by defeated people. It will be populated only by conquerors, which is a great encouragement for us because we know that Jesus Christ is the conqueror. He is the one who conquered sin and death and the grave. And by faith in Him, we are united together with Him and God sees us as having accomplished what Christ accomplished. So, united together with Christ, we too are conquerors, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Jesus Christ conquered for us, and so by faith in Him, we too are conquerors. But in another sense, we're also conquerors because we are endurers, we are perseverers. The Bible tells us in many places that those who will inherit heaven are those who persevere and those who endure to the end. For example, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Heaven will be populated by millions and millions of endurers and perseverers. Those who are religious people who say in their lifetime, Lord, Lord, and do not do what Jesus says, they won't populate heaven. Those who had an experience with God when they were 12 years old and never lived for Him and never evidenced any real life change, they will not populate heaven. Heaven will be populated by the conquerors and the perseverers. But it will also be populated by millions and millions of persons who died in their infancy. Now, Scripture doesn't teach us this explicitly, but it strongly implies that those who leave this existence, those who encounter physical death, before an age at which faith is possible, that they are taken to be in the presence of God. Again, Scripture doesn't specifically say this, but it strongly implies it in places like the story of Daniel and the child that was born from the adulterous relationship with he and Bathsheba. Remember, the child was born very sick, sick unto death. And while the child lived for a few days, David was beside himself. He was enormously distressed and grieved. He couldn't be consoled. He fasted, he wept, he lay prostrate on the floor praying until he received word that the child had died. And then he had peace. And he got up and he said, I will see the child again. Now, that doesn't explicitly tell us that the child is in the presence of God, nor does it explicitly tell us that all children who die in infancy are taken into the presence of God. But that is the implication that that passage makes. So this is a wonderful truth for us. A wonderful truth that the millions and millions of persons that we will see in heaven who never lived past infancy. Perhaps you know some. Perhaps you have a child that died in infancy or was miscarried, and you will see that child in heaven. We believe that this means that heaven will also be populated with millions of children who were born into Buddhist cultures or Muslim cultures or Hindu cultures. Cultures in which had the child lived to an age at which they could begin understanding, they would have been taught a false view of God and been led astray from God by the false religion of man. But because they died in infancy, 
They will be in the presence of the Lord. Think of what Abraham says to God as he pleads to God for Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis chapter 18. Far be it from you to do such a thing, God, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now think of what that will look like. Billions upon billions of miscarried babies. Billions of babies, perhaps, who died crib deaths or were aborted. The horror of abortion will be set right in that day in which all of those persons will be in the presence of God for eternity, experiencing fullness of joy, fullness of satisfaction and pleasure. So heaven will be populated by by those that will also be populated by angels. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. John here describes seeing myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels. So heaven will be populated by angels. Now think for just a moment on how joyful that will be. Of how incredible it will be to rub rub elbows with angels, so to speak. Angels are sinless, perfect servants of God. And we will we will possess heaven and live in heaven right beside them. And we will engage them and they will engage us. And think of how wonderful that would be. Conversations with angels. Now, what would a conversation with an angel be like? I think that sometimes we think that because angels are sinless, perfect servants of God, that therefore they're like some kind of robot or some kind of animal. And having a conversation with an angel might be tantamount to having a conversation with that fellow. But I don't think Scripture allows us to have that impression of angels. Instead, Scripture gives us a description of angels that tells us that they have personality. They have emotions. They have intelligence. They are curious. They desire to learn. In other words, they're not human beings, but they have a personhood. For example, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Here we read that, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal gathering speaks of a festivities, a festival, happiness. Happiness, of course, is an emotion. Angels are presented to us as emotional beings. Or think of the emotion that they displayed in Luke 2 as they announced the birth of the Messiah. Or think of, again, Revelation 5 when the angels are worshiping the Lamb, they say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Many times in the Revelation, we see angels worshiping, and worshiping is inherently emotional. Worship is not all emotion, but worship is an activity that includes emotion and involves emotion. And so angels are are, are shown to us in Scripture as creatures, as beings that have emotions. Um, in fact, we read in, Ch- in Job chapter 38 that the sons of God shouted for joy. So they're emotional beings, they're intelligent beings, they're curious beings. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that angels long to learn or to look into or to understand salvation, the salvation that God has purchased for men. So they're curious beings, they're intelligent beings. We know that Scripture tells us that at some point, One-third of the angels chose to follow Lucifer, while two-thirds of the angels did not, and they stayed loyal to Christ. And so we don't know a lot about that because we're not told a lot about that, but what that at least tells us is that 
at least at some point, angels were capable of making choices. Perhaps they're still capable of making choices. But all of this describes beings that have personality. They're not human, but they're not robots, they're not animals either. And so our time in heaven will be spent alongside these creatures, myriads and myriads of them, engaging them while they engage us. Now, what might a conversation with an angel be about? Well, perhaps, this is purely speculation, but perhaps they will tell us of all the times in which, at the bidding of God, they spared us from a tragic car accident that we never knew anything about. Or, by the bidding of God, they spared us from some sort of tragedy in our life, or spared a loved one. Or perhaps they'll tell us of the things that God had them do that were related to us. How they watched out for us. How they, uh, how they prevented certain tragedies from happening in our lives. Perhaps they'll tell us all about those things. Perhaps they'll tell us about how it is that God has used some of the things that we said or we did in the lives of others that we don't know about. Perhaps that will be some of the things that they tell us about. What will we tell angels? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that what they want to know about is they want to know about salvation. They want to know about redemption because they're not redeemed. Angels are not saved beings. They're not saved because they didn't need to be saved. They didn't, the angels that didn't fall didn't fall into sin. And so, therefore, they really don't perceive the redemption of God when the Savior died for the Creator. When the Creator died for those who hated Him. When He gave Himself for those who spited Him in every way. Angels don't have a, a first-hand perception of that at all. They don't have a per- first-hand perception of how it is that we live by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. They don't understand what it means to love God by the power of the Spirit. They don't understand what it means to serve God by the power of the Spirit working in us. They don't know what it means to live with a dual nature. A sinful nature that remains, while a holy nature also has taken place. They don't know what those things mean. They don't know what it means to live for the risen Savior, to love Jesus because He died for us. Because Jesus didn't die for the angels. So they don't know what all of that means, and they are curious about that. So what joyful conversations those will be. What an incredible homecoming it will be. So let's think for just a moment about some of the relationships. What will our relationships look like in heaven? We know, of course, that Jesus tells us that no one will marry or be married in heaven. But, um, and that is because, of course, that we are the bride of Christ. We will, we will be spiritually married to Jesus in heaven. However, even though we won't be married to one another, we nevertheless should not expect that all of our earthly relationships will cease to exist in the next existence. We will, first of all, we have every reason to expect that we will retain our gender in heaven. If you're male now, you can expect to be male for eternity. If you're female now, you can expect to be female for eternity. We won't all be genderless in heaven. We will retain our gender now. And the reason that we can believe that is because the Scriptures tell us, specifically in Genesis chapter 1, that a significant part of the image of God is our gender, our maleness and our femaleness. And so we bear the image of God, among other ways, in our gender. And so there's no reason that that would pass away in heaven. So we will continue to be males 
and females in heaven, although we'll relate to one another differently in that existence. So we'll continue to retain that, but also we have every reason to expect that our earthly relationships will in some way still be present in the next life. If your mother is in heaven, then you can expect that in heaven she will still have a motherly type relationship with you. Certainly not the same type of motherly relationship, but it would still contain some elements of a mother-child relationship. If your child is in heaven, then you can expect that there's some sort of uh, thing remaining in that relationship that is something akin to to a parent and a child. We should expect that our earthly relationships will continue in some way and even perhaps be intensified in their love and intensified even in their devotion to one another. We think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, the rich man goes to Hades. And in Hades, what is his request? His request is that someone would go and tell his brothers. And so, he doesn't, first of all, ask that someone would go and tell everybody. He has a specific concern for his brothers. And he calls them his brothers. So that tells us that that relationship is still intact after physical death. So we should expect that to still be in place as well. Only intensified, purified, sanctified to where all of our earthly family relationships are now whole. Sin is removed. And for once, for the first time, we will love others as we love ourselves. For the very first time, we will truly love others like we love ourselves. Can you imagine a society that is comprised only of people who love everyone else in the same way that they love themselves. Heaven will be a very social place. There will be billions upon billions of conversations taking place in heaven. Heaven will be a very social place. We talked last week about New Jerusalem, and clearly the city is described as a very large city, but nonetheless it is clearly described as a city. And the thing about a city is that a city contains a lot of people. Most of us are country folks, which is why we live where we live, right? What do we find distasteful about a city? What we find distasteful about a city is the proximity of so many people. And we find that distasteful because people hurt each other. And people are rude to one another. And people are selfish to one another. When you pack millions and millions of them together within close proximity, then a lot of hurting and a lot of rudeness goes on. But imagine, if you can, living in a city in which every person in that city was a true, genuine follower of Christ. But let's go further than that. Imagine a city in which every person is not only a genuine follower of Christ, but they are a sinless follower of Christ. Selfishness is no more. Contempt is no more. Uh, Lust, greed is no more. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. <clears throat> we'll look back up at chapter 21 again, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I will wager this morning that you are not even capable of imagining a society that is completely devoid of sin. No more sinful desire, no more sinful thought, no more sinful action. All of them are gone. And the only thing that is left are humans and angels that love one another in the same way that they love themselves. The positive attributes that God has given to each person are what remains and all of the taint of sinful relationships are gone. What about your personality? Will your personality exist in heaven? Or will we lose our personalities there? I think that the only reason that we would think that we would lose our personality in heaven would be if our personality were sinful or evil. Now, you may think that you know some people that have a sinful, evil personality, but I assure you the personality itself is not sinful. It was created by God. And it is a reflection of His image. It's greatly tainted with sin. And for some people it's really tainted with sin, for others less so. For all of us, our personalities are tainted with sin. And so heaven will be a place at which the personality remains, but all the corruption of the sin upon it is gone. You know that every, every friction between humans, all arguments, all misunderstandings, all friction between humans is a result of sin. Either yours or theirs or most likely both. And so when the sin is removed, so also is all the friction. God created us unique. He created us wonderful in our individuality. And the complexities of our personalities are something that is amazing and intriguing and something that we will enjoy for eternity. Imagine the sin nature gone. Imagine for the first time you live in a society of people in which 100% of the beings love in the same way that they love themselves. The quality and the quantity of love that we feel for others will be exactly the same as the quantity and the quality of love that we feel for ourselves. That is something that is hard to get your mind around. But that is the reality of heaven. That's part of what's meant in verse 4, chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. How much mourning, how much crying, how much pain are caused by the friction of sin in interpersonal relationships. I would say that in some way or another, all pain and all suffering is ultimately caused by the sin that manifests itself between people. But we will enjoy a perfect relationship with one another. And not just with those that we know in this life, but we will enjoy a perfect relationship with everyone there. Because we have every reason to believe that in heaven... We will know all people, and all people will know us. There will be no need for any introductions in heaven. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are there with Jesus. Moses and Elijah are also there with Jesus. Peter, James, and John needed no introduction to know that that was Moses and Elijah. Although they never saw them, 
never saw a picture of them. Likewise, we read from uh, Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, we see now in a mirror dimly, but then, speaking of the next existence, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul says, my personality will continue into heaven, and as known here, those who know me here will know me there. And even those who don't know me here will know me there. There will be no name tags in heaven. Anybody like those goofy name tags you have to wear sometimes? Hi, my name is Jason. No need for any of that. Because we will know all people, all people will know us, and we will all enjoy a perfect, sin-free, loving relationship with one another. Lastly this morning, let's look again at verse 3 of chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. If our relationships with one another are completely full of joy and absent of all strife, then imagine our relationship with God. Sin is, of course, a barrier between our relationship with us, between us and God. Jesus goes to the cross to remove the barrier. On the cross, He, he makes atonement for our sin. The veil is torn. And so no more is there a separation between God and man. But still, sin remains. And you know this to be true in your life. As you try to follow closely with God, as you try to walk in close fellowship with Him, you yourself know how your sin interrupts that. And your sin inhibits that. Some of us <clears throat> um, were recently talking about some of the distractions in our lives. The noise of our life. The, the things in our life that compete with, with God for our attention or for our affections. Some of those things are good. Some of those things are not good. In heaven, all of that noise, all of that distraction, all of those are removed and we will for the first time fully, perfectly realize God the Father and Jesus Christ, His Son, as the source of our total joy and the object of our total delight. For the first time, we will fully realize that in completeness. There will, there will be no more remaining distractions, no more remaining barriers between us and closeness with God. We will sing, as Revelation 5.12 says, that will be the song we'll sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain because all of our tensions and all of our internal conflicts are taken away. Right now, we live with these internal passions that, that conflict. We've got passions for God, but yet we still have passions for other things too. And there's this battle taking place within us. And the tensions will be gone in heaven. No more will anything compete with with our heart, to delight in something else besides God. No more will that happen. No more tension. No more divided affection. We're coming up on, on Christmas time. Time of the year when gifts, a lot of gifts get given and received. You remember probably being a child and receiving on Christmas morning some of those gifts. And if you remember, maybe if there was a Christmas morning in which you received two or three just really good things, and you think back into your, your little kid brain back then, you remember the tension? Because here at one moment, you're given like three dreams come true. 
and you're torn between what you play with? Anybody remember that? No more of that. The tensions are gone. And God is now the sole source of our joy and the sole object of our delight. Or, or uh, think maybe a little bit later in life, if perhaps you had the experience in high school or college of having two persons of the opposite sex interested, you, interested in you at the same time and, and you were interested in both of them and you couldn't date both of them. So you had to make a choice. Tensions are gone. Distractions for our affections, those things that compete for our affections are gone. And Jesus and His Father are now seen as the sole source of our joy and the sole object of our delight. Let's finish this morning with Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore.